Hi, and welcome to Wine Chats with Tim. We're going to go through the world of wine by region, as opposed to just studying individual grapes. When we get into a region, we'll talk about what grapes are grown and all that kind of thing, but we're going to go a bit more than that. You have to have a frame of reference. Most people are going to talk about a region and talk about the grapes, the climate, and soil, and it's all important. In the end, it's probably the most important thing, but it's not the whole story. I believe in a holistic approach. The history, the culture, the food, the religion, the language matters almost as much. For example, it explains why St. Emilion and Pomerol were considered such backwaters and forgotten about for so long if you understand the religious issues that were part of the French Revolution. Religion played a far bigger part on the right bank than it ever did on the left bank. Also realizing that Bordeaux was British during its most important development stage explains why Premier Cru is above Grand Cru there, but Grand Cru is above Premier Cru in Burgundy. Understanding the history of city-states in Italy explains why regions right next to each other can produce completely different wines with the same grapes. History can explain the mess that is German wine in general. These things matter. As we hit each region, we explore all these factors as best we can. We're going to start with France. It's not necessarily because I'm a Francophile. I am. But that's not the reason. It's because the AOC system of France is what all European wine is based upon. I believe that to an extent, American wine is going to reach that point soon as well. The rules may seem arbitrary at first. But as you delve deeper, you can understand why and can see a future where those kinds of rules could be implemented here. If you own a vineyard, say in Howell Mountain, you have a set price that you know you can get for Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. As long as everyone else on that mountain produces good Cabernet Sauvignon grapes, the price is going to keep going up. If some crazy nut decides to pull up his Cabernet and plant Simeon or something else there, it will devalue your grapes especially if the Simeon's bad. The entire thing depends upon people here in Howell Mountain and thinking great wine. Imagine if they plant Zinfandel or Petite Syrah. I can definitely foresee a day where landowners band together to determine what grapes can be grown in certain AVAs to protect their own interests. That's what led to the AOC in the first place. It's confusing at first, but there's normally a reason certain grapes are grown in certain places. Normally it's because of soil and climate, but sometimes it's economics, and sometimes it's war. As we look at it, the first thing is, is what is the AOC? Simply, it's the Appellation to Origin Control. It's a protectionist system. It's administered by the INAO, and about 46% of all French wines fall into it. So this regulating body is going to control the areas of protection, the variety of grapes allowed in each area, yield per hectare, vineyard practices, the amount of alcohol, winemaking practices, and tasting and analysis. If you fail to meet the quality labels, levels, you get labeled a different thing used to be called the Vins de Limini Qualitet Superior, but that's been abolished. Normally, you just get bumped down to a lower level. 
So if you're not AOC, then what are you? Well, there's been the pie, and these are country wines that they have their own regulations and controls. And then you have Ben de France, which is just table wine. The seeds of the AOC or AOP gets used kind of interchangeably. AOP is what the EU established. AOC is old traditional French. The seeds of this go back way before it actually was created, but it began in the Chateauneuf de Pop region. And it was because of adulteration and fraud. But even before then, you see be- beginnings of it in Champagne, little bits of beginnings in uh, the Madoc as they start outlawing different things. You can go all the way back to Philip the Bold and uh, the Duke of Burgundy, who demanded that all Gamay be ripped up and replanted with Pinot Noir. There were always rules and regulations being implemented. <clears throat> in the 1930s, when the AOC was created in Chateau to Pop, the main type of fraud was that hybrids and inferior grapes were being used. Now today, <clears throat> there are 18 allowable grapes in Chateau to Pop. So it's amazing to consider inferior grapes when there's already that many allowed. But it was happening. There are pros and cons of this, just like in everything else. Your major cons are that you don't allow for experimentation. So if you're a grape grower, and especially now in an era with climate change, you might be encouraged to plant a new variety that's going to do well with heat. But the system does not reward that. The system actually penalizes that. And if you plant another grape there, say in Bordeaux, and you're like, it's too hot now for Merlot. By the time it starts ripening, the sugar is too high because of the heat. It becomes out of balance. It's flabby. It doesn't work as well. I want to plant something different. The system will then label that as just Vin the France, just table wine. It's not worth the effort. You wasted, you just lost money. <clears throat> so that's the biggest con is that you can't experiment. One of the other problems is the system's just based on tradition and what was thought best back in you know, the 1940s when the system really began to take hold and technology's changed you know we have ability to do things that we couldn't then you know at the time when you were trying to battle say frost in Bordeaux the best method for doing it was to put fans in the vineyards that could keep air from circulating and blow it well it was seen as mechanical and something that was dangerous and so you know dangerous as in that it would give an unfair advantage to certain places over others and was deemed untrustworthy and so they banned it but if you have enough money you can hire a helicopter to fly over your vineyards and accomplish the same thing and you see that that happens now The rules haven't been changed. 
The pros are on the consumer side, though. Because of all this regulation, you know if you go out and you get a Bordeaux, what it's going to be. You know what it's going to taste like, what the grapes are like. You have a good idea. Whereas you can buy a wine from here in America, from Napa Valley, and it's all over the spectrum as to what it's going to be. So as we tour and run through um, France, we're going to do some stops in Champagne, Bordeaux, Burgundy, the Loire, the Rhone, Alsace, the Jura, Provence, and Languedoc-Roussillon. In some of those regions, we're going to spend much more than one podcast. For example, in Bordeaux, it's definite three that we are going to hit and you're probably going to have four or five in Burgundy just because of the size of these regions and the vast difference between the parts of it. You're also going to begin to see a classification system that's built up. Each of these regions will have their own classification for the most part with different AOCs inside of AOCs and It's what American wine was based upon with AVAs and sub-AVAs. And you'll see the same thing in Italy with DOC, DOCG, IGT, all these different levels. Um, Some of the bigger ones is you're going to see the classification of Bordeaux that happened in 1855. The creation of the five growths. You'll see how St. Emilion copied it about 100 years later with the cruise of St. Emilion. What they did that was very unique, though, is is that they made their classification where it can be adjusted every 10 years. Champagne has the echelon of Cruz, which is much more about grape growing than it is about production. And then you have the levels of Burgundy, of Grand Cru, Premier Cru, the Lodge level. France's history plays a big part in all this, especially as you start to look at the different regions. Now, just like everywhere else, viticulture was brought by the Etruscans, the Greeks, and the Romans. The Greeks thought that Gaul, what they called France, was too far north, so they didn't really bring it to anywhere except for Provence. The Romans kind of advanced it. According to Pliny in the first century of A.D., Vienne and the Rhone Valley produced high-priced resonated wine. It's the first French wine to note. Now, resonated, you know, this is um, kind of a Greek style, like Retzina. Totally different from what we think of. But by the 400s, the Romans had planted vineyards all the way up into Champagne. Now, that's a long stretch, and especially if you think Rome fell in 495. But by the 400s, they were planted in Champagne, a very long way away from the city of Rome. In 486, Clovis defeated the last Roman governor of Gaul. Rome's kicked out, and he becomes the king of the Franks. He founds the Merovingian line of kings. The Merovingians ruled until 751, and they ruled most of modern-day France with parts of Germany and Italy. In 
507, Clovis defeats the Visigoths and takes over modern-day Bordeaux. Clovis was crowned king at the Cathedral of Reims in uh, Champagne. If you go and visit Champagne, the Cathedral of Reims is still there. It's huge. It is a great place to visit. Um, And from that point on, it kind of begins the cementing of the idea of Champagne and Celebration. And 6.30, Clos de Beze is planted, and it's the first Grand Cru vineyard is planted in Burgundy. We have the Carolingian dynasty, which comes after the Merovingians. This is, um, the height of it was Charlemagne. It's the Holy Roman Emperor, King of France, King of Lombardy. And during the reign of one of his uh, descendants, Pepin, Aquitaine becomes independent. Now, Aquitaine is important because Aquitaine is Bordeaux. It was reconquered and then split multiple times. It was at different parts of its history, parts of Spain, parts of France, and parts of England. Eight forty-three, you have the Treaty of Verdun, which splits Charlemagne Empire into thirds after he dies. This is important because this is really what fractures um, France and Germany and all these into becoming their own independent kingdoms. And as they keep dying and this, the inheritance keeps getting split, this is what leads to the city-states and these smaller kingdoms. Alsace becomes part of what's known as Middle Franca. In 855, Lothar dies and it's divided again and it becomes part of Lotharingia or Lorraine. You would, If you study World War II, you see that Hitler was always trying to demand for the return of Alsace and Lorraine to the German throne, which is part of this. In 880, Alsace becomes part of the Holy Roman Empire. 1054, one of our other big events that happens that shapes French history is you have the Great Schism, which splits the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Council is held at Avignon. Avignon is down in the Rhone area. In 1152, Eleanor of Aquitaine is married to Louis of France. And she has her wedding annulled because of the Crusades and how poorly France does in the Crusades. Aquitaine, as an independent country, um, the marriage was a political one looking for French protection when it was obvious that France was unable to provide protection due to their inability at war. She appealed to the Pope, got the marriage annulled, and two years later she marries Henry II of England that point Aquitaine becomes English this is Bordeaux and remains that way until the end of the Hundred Years War the Hundred Years War in many senses was a war fought about control of Bordeaux 1262 Alsace becomes independent it becomes a free imperial city in 1309 a second papacy is created in Avignon which then eventually 
as a result of fixing the Grand Schism becomes the only papacy. The papacy was not centered in the Vatican. It was centered in the Rhone. Pope Clement purchases land in Avignon. And this is kind of where we have Chateauneuf-du-Pape become what it is. Chateauneuf-du-Pape meaning the new house of the Pope. You have a line of Burgundy uh, kings that dies out in 1363 and Philip the Bold takes over Burgundy and then begins promoting Burgundian wine. Philip the Bold is the one who negotiates the peace talks to end the Hundred Years' War and it's the first time we ever hear mention of Pinot Noir. Now we know that Philip the Bold loved Pinot Noir because he orders Gamay to be uprooted in the Cote d'Or and replanted with Pinot Noir. In 1440 to 1447, Burgundy has wars of independence trying to separate itself from France. They acquire Upper Alsace in 1469. Frederick the Great of the Holy Roman Empire retakes Alsace, cementing this as being German. The 1500s, Aquitaine, which is, you know, gone back to the French at the end of the Holy, uh, the Hundred Years' War, appeals to the English for help against French Catholic persecution. And it basically, for all intents and purposes, has open revolution against France and kind of sides with the Basque movement of Spain during this period. In 1525, Obreon is founded, and this is really the first situation where we have fine wine anywhere in the world that is sold by a title of a chateau instead of just as its region. Previously, you just bought Bordeaux or you bought Burgundy and it didn't matter necessarily where it came from, who produced it. This was revolutionary. 1639, Alsace is conquered by France. And it's not until the mid-1600s that the Dutch begin uh, building what they call jaws, which are uh, drainage ditches in the Madoc in order to drain the swamp that we now think of as Bordeaux. Previously to that, when we... Th- when they were mentioning Bordeaux, for the most part, they were mentioning further south in the Graves area, or they were mentioning Entre de Mers, or they were talking about uh, the right bank. Sixteen sixty-two to I guess the first half of the seventeen hundreds, you begin to have sparkling wine actually understood. And how to make it work and how to control it. You know, wine would, you would get sparkling wine and champagne, but it was accidental more than anything else. Um, fermentation would stop because of the cold. And then, as you know, they'd bottle it, and then as the temperatures warmed up again, fermentation would start again in the bottle, and you'd have explosions, you'd have. Um, sparkling wine and they never really understood why that was and it took about a 50 year period of study for them to kind of get it 
1668, an important person, Pierre Perignon, was appointed cellar master at the Benedictine Abbey. This is Don Perignon. 1715, a sparkling wine craze starts in Paris for champagne. It's because of Philip II, who is the regent. Runard is established in 1729, the first sparkling house in Champagne. There are older houses that have been around for longer, but it was the first one to be for sparkling wine. Around that same time, Malbec appears in uh, Bordeaux. About 70, 80 years later, Cabernet Sauvignon materializes. Cabernet is a crossing. It is not a noble grape. Um, You have Cab Franc and Sauvignon Blanc, which both grew in Bordeaux, and they had an offspring, and that's Cabernet Sauvignon. And then the French Revolution comes, and it changes everything. Napoleon invades Russia and takes Champagne with him. He's finally defeated at the Battle of Rims, a combination of Russian and Prussian forces. Russia occupies Champagne at that point. But one of the things that Napoleon did was called the Code Napoleon, which he put down in law, basically what Charlemagne did, that if you die, your inheritance gets divided equally among your offspring. This revolutionized the way Burgundy went. These vineyards were split, and then they were split, and they were split again and again and again, to where you end up having someone who owes maybe a row of vines, and they can't make a wine out of it. It created the need for negotiants and co-ops and things of that sort. It didn't affect Bordeaux. Bordeaux was incorporated. They, they were giant companies. They were not individual landholders. In 1855, Napoleon III orders the classification of the Madoc. Around the same time, Dr. Laval classified the Cote d'Or and, the ba- and created the basis for what we know of today as Premier Cru and Grand Cru levels. And not long after that, phylloxera happens and totally decimated everything. Around the same time, Prussia takes over the Alsace. Kaiser Wilhelm is crowned Emperor of Germany at the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles. And then an American, a Texan, Thomas Munson, figures out grafting and how to defeat phylloxera. It's 1888. So you basically had 20 years of just terrible harvest after terrible harvest because of phylloxera. You then have other fungal diseases that are happening right after that. All of them are things that are brought from the New World over on accident. Sort of like bringing smallpox from the old world to the new world. The same kind of thing happened with uh, viticulture. And then we have World War I. 
Germany declares war on France. 1917, you have the Russian Revolution and Champagne is banned. This is important because Champagne's number one market was Russia. They're forced to kind of try to find a new market. It's delayed because German forces occupy Champagne. The end of World War I, Alsace returns to French rule, and France boycotts all German products. You have the beginning of laws regulating champagne, and this is kind of the beginning stages of understanding the AOC. And then it's put into effect in 1936 with Pop. Almost immediately, four years later, Nazi Germany occupies Alsace and Champagne. There was a thing called the System of Complaint. This is uh, uncultivated land was available for wine grower to approach an owner of the land. So if you own land and you're not using it, and I'm a grape grower, I can come to you and make a deal that I will plant on your land. It's almost sharecropping to an extent, but it's a little bit better because I, as the grape grower, will plant and tend the land and get the full harvest for the first five years. After that, I will split the harvest equally with the grower and the landowner would split it for perpetuity. The whole purpose was to encourage grape growing. The idea being that I'm going to make all this money in the first five years on this plot of land. I start splitting it with the uh, landowner and that hopeful idea is that I will take the profits from those first five years and go plant at another place. And that I'll be able to keep building this empire of growing grapes and planting grapes. After the 13th century, the landowner no longer had any claim on the land. He would just receive payments. It was a way to end serfdom also. So it was very much a sharecropper idea. Just like sharecropping was supposed to replace slavery and it was almost inherently the same thing. This is the... It's replacing serfdom, but it's almost the same thing. You know, you had... Everyone knows about phylloxera, but there were other fungal diseases. Odium. Um... Reduces quality and quantity and color. Led to some of the most disastrous vintages. And then they finally figured out it was cured by sulfur dusting. Downy mildew. You know, they they figured out that they could cure phylloxera grafting. But then the grafting created downy mildew. And it would attack the green parts of the vine and affect... And the effect would be that the leaves would fall off, which is going to um, inhibit photosynthesis. It also will inhibit uh, cover to where your grapes are just getting blistered by the sun. And then you had black rot. You know, we have noble rot, which is a great thing, but black rot is a totally different thing. It could cost you up to 80% of a crop.
as we were uh, talking about all this history, you see the Germans constantly coming over into Champagne and Alsace. You see uh, the British constantly coming down into Bordeaux. You have a lot of Dutch influence on Bordeaux. Uh, Provence and Languedoc have a little bit more in common with Piedmont than they do uh, Burgundy or Champagne. You will see that there were times where the French exerted control all the way down into Piedmont. You know, you have these huge wars that just devastate the country. All these things, as we hit regions, are going to become very important. Um, in terms of hectare and what grapes are grown the most, Merlot's the most planted grape. This will change. Global warming will affect this. The second most grown is Grenache. Ugni Blanc is third. This is, you know, you don't see wine bottles labeled Ugni Blanc. Uh, Ugni Blanc's what you use for cognac. Then Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Carignan, Cabernet Franc, Pinot Noir, and Sauvignon Blanc. Another thing that will be constantly seen is that most of these vineyards were planted where there was some sort of geography that would have a moderating effect, whether it be the Vaux Mountains over by uh, Alsace, where the clouds would come and dump all their rain on one side of the mountain and then the other side would be completely dry. That rain shadow um, is something that is seen in wine regions all over the world. Um, You'll see also, whether we're talking about the Cote d'Or or whether you're looking at um, down in the Rhone around Hermitage and Cote Roti, where you don't necessarily want to plant at the very top, you don't want to plant at the bottom, it's kind of that middle area is the sweet spot because it gives you the best angle of sun, it gives you the best soil as you have runoff coming from the top down, you're not stripped bare and down to the bedrock. You know, they did centuries of studying these things and taking diligent notes. And the religion, the religious aspect of the Catholic Church bringing wine with them everywhere for their masses and for communion, these all are things that play in. And so as, you know, the monks got to where growing wine and making uh, beers was a significant part of their daily ritual and their daily life. And outside of prayer and study, wine was about it for them. And because of that, they were able to take that that studious mindset that they had created and apply it into wine to study when they harvested this year, what the weather was like throughout the year. Did they get the harvest in before rain or and how did the rain affect it? Things of that sort. These kind of notes that would then be passed down in that same abbey about that same vineyard enabled them to learn what went best here, how, when they needed to harvest, how different things would affect it and became the basis for what these regulations would become. So on the next podcast, we're going to go to uh, Bordeaux and we're going to start with the Madoc, the 
left bank side, which is what most people think of when they think of Bordeaux. I hope you all will enjoy it coming on this journey with me and we'll take some time to dig into the history and the culture of these regions and how it affects the wine and why it makes the wine what it is.